Amen. I want to thank the session and the deacons for the lovely flowers. I noticed the sanctuary looked particularly beautiful this morning. wasn't quite aware of the significance until I was told. It's a, uh, I had forgotten that it's the end of another year of service here for my wife and me and my family. It's a joy to have been your pastor for 13 years, and I look forward to God's blessing, Lord willing, on year 14 to come. I also just would tell you I had the privilege of a video call with Jeff Went, our dear pastor, uh, shortly before leaving home for church tonight, and uh, his spirit seemed good, his personality's intact. Uh, please be praying for God's supernatural power to bless his rehabilitation. He's out of the hospital, one step closer to coming home. He'll be there a little while rehabbing, and uh, let's pray for God to glorify himself and answer to our prayers. He loves to do that. Well, listen now to God's holy and errant and life-giving word as we continue our studies in Second Chronicles uh, our passage today is chapter 6. I'm going to read from verse 21 to verse 42. Solomon continues his prayer and listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen from heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in his house. Then hear from heaven and act and judge his servants, repaying the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. If your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you and they turn again and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people and bring them again to the land that you gave to them and to their fathers. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, and if they pray towards this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, If the enemies besiege them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own sorrow and stretching out his hand toward this house, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive. And render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways, for you, you only, know the hearts of the children of mankind that they may fear you and walk in your ways all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house, hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, and that they might know that this house that I have built is called by your name. If your people go out to battle against their enemies, by whatever way they should send them, and they pray to you towards the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, 
and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so they so that they are carried away captive to a land far or near yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity saying we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly if they repent with all their mind and with all their heart and the land of their captivity to which they were carried captive and pray toward their land which you gave to their fathers the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name then hear from heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their pleas and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, O oh my God, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayers of this place. And now arise, O oh Lord, Lord God, and go to your resting place, you in the ark of your might. Let your priests, O oh Lord, be clothed with salvation. Let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O oh Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. The grass withers, the flowers fall. And the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Father, we thank you for the prayer of your servant Solomon. We thank you for the message it has for all the generations of your people and for us today. Help us, Lord, to understand this prayer. But more than that, Lord, help us to make it our own that when we pray, you will listen and you will forgive. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Matthew chapter 18, our Lord Jesus taught how we should deal with sins with the aim of reconciliation. And afterwards, the disciple Peter came to Jesus asking if there was a limit to how many sins we must forgive. Peter asked, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Matthew 18, 21. Now, Jesus, who knew his Bible far better than Peter did, or Peter would not have asked the question, I think the Lord may have enjoyed the irony of Peter's way of putting that as many as seven times, because Jesus knew that Israel's King Solomon, when dedicating Israel's temple, asked God to forgive using seven scenarios where sin might provoke judgment. Jesus might have answered Peter saying, go back and look at Solomon's prayer. See how many times he asked the Lord to forgive your sins. Now, seven seemed like an awfully large number for Peter. Too many sins for one person to forgive. Thankfully, Solomon had a more expansive vision of God's grace. He knew that seven happens to be the biblical number for completeness. And so as he, in this prayer, this petition, he gives seven scenarios where there's sin and he asks God to forgive, what he's actually saying is forgive everyone all their sins, whoever and how many, when they appeal to you, O God, for your mercy and grace at this temple. Well, as we continue Solomon's prayer of dedication, we actually conclude that prayer for the temple's dedication, we find in 2 Chronicles 6, 21 to 42, that virtually all of this prayer is dedicated to forgiveness. And here, as previously, Solomon shows his great spiritual perceptiveness. You remember that when he was first enthroned as Israel's king, the Lord came to him and told him he could ask for anything he wants. Ask what I shall give to you. Well, many people would would request great riches or victory in battle or a long life. 
Solomon showed his discerning heart and mind by praying for wisdom. He was going to rule the people. And what he needed was wisdom, a discerning mind and heart. Well, that was Solomon praying for him as himself as king, but now he prays for himself and the people simply as the people of God. And if there's one thing that he can ask for, he knows what it should be. He asked for the Lord to forgive. And listen, verse 21 says, to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, and listen from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Solomon prayed for forgiveness because it is the first and primary blessing that sinners receive through faith in the Lord. The Lord has many things to give us, many gifts and graces to offer his people, but only as they stand before him justified and forgiven of their sins. Matthew Henry wrote, the forgiveness of our sins is that which makes way for all of the other answers to our prayers. And for this reason, Solomon takes up this prayer of intercession and he asks the Lord to forgive those who pray and repent. He also teaches us how to pray, boldly approaching God's throne of grace to ask, as Jesus taught us, forgive us our debts. In this way, of course, Solomon anticipates his greater descendant, the Lord Jesus, who not only intercedes for our sins, but offered his own blood the sacrifice that gains our forgiveness. Well, it is evident as Solomon prays this prayer for forgiveness that he perceives sin as the greatest problem, not only for himself and his own generation, but for every generation of God's people that would come. Implicit to this prayer is his realization that sin has dire consequences because sin is judged by the holy God. That is the clear assumption of this prayer. Now, emphasizing sin and judgment does not make for popular religion today. Guess what? It has never made for popular religion. It was, for instance, because of the English Puritans' insistence on preaching about sin and judgment that Britain's King Charles II once called Presbyterianism not a religion for gentlemen. That is true in that sense. You see, the spiritually unawakened may consider talk of sin and judgment to be impolite. That's what Charles II meant. But Solomon knew that it is the issue when it comes to our relationship with the God who is actually there, the God before whom we must stand, the God who judges our sin. And Solomon not only had a biblical estimation of how God reacts to sin, but he also knew the Bible's teaching about the nature of fallen man. Gordon McConville writes that Solomon's prayer involves a foreboding that the subsequent generations of Israel will be characterized by unfaithfulness rather than faithfulness. That is a view that will be vindicated by 2 Chronicles as we read the story of what happens in the generations that follow. Sin will be the big problem. Sin is always the big problem. So Solomon prays for forgiveness as the essential solution why he knows that God judges sin. Now, armed with this biblical estimation of God, of man, and of sin, Solomon, in this prayer, makes seven petitions that primarily focus on scenarios involving future sin. 
And he first prays about situa- a situation and situations where it's not entirely clear uh, to human judges where the sin lies. Look at verses 22 and 23. This is the first petition. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear from heaven and act and judge your servants, repaying the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. Now what's going on there? Well, it's a situation described in Exodus 22, 7 to 11, where a person has broken his or her oath to another, but the guilt of the matter cannot be proved. And so the people make an oath. They both swear to their testimony. And cases like this, you think of uh, the episode earlier in Solomon's life. It's recorded in 1 Kings chapter 3, where two women both claimed to be the mother of one infant child. And it stretched even the prodigious discernment of Solomon. He actually was able to cut that Gordian knot in that case. But, but he knows that there are times, and he prays this way, that only God is really able to discern sin. God is the one who can tell truth from lies. God is the one who will execute judgment on the guilty and will vindicate the righteous and so here we see Solomon's basic assumption that will operate throughout this prayer God knows when and how his people sin God can be relied upon to visit judgment on those who are guilty now correspondingly Solomon knows that when God then judges his people we can be sure that it was a just response to sin how often we don't perceive things rightly People often accuse God of his actions, but he perceives things rightly. And when Christians, when God's people are frustrated because there's so little justice in the world, well, this means we should pray to God and he will sort things out, at least in the end. Now, this initial petition sets the stage for Solomon's second scenario Since God can be counted on to detect sin and to judge when the nation suffers affliction, it must be because they have fallen into sin. These are not personal scenarios. These are national scenarios. Now here in verse 24, the second petition, he considers military defeat. If your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you. Now, an example of this kind of judgment is found in Joshua chapter 7. Joshua had just led the people into the promised land. They'd had the stupendous victory over the fortress city of Jericho. They blew the temple, the trumpets, and the walls of Jericho fell down. They were feeling pretty strong. And so shortly thereafter, there's a, a little Canaanite force, just a few thousand people. Joshua doesn't even send his main force. This will be, be an easy battle, and they're completely routed. And the Israelites are defeated, and Joshua afterwards tears his clothes, and he's in distress. And God tells him that Israel was defeated because of the sin of a man named Achan. Achan had stolen from Jericho some goods that were devoted to the Lord. This is Joshua 7, 1 to 26. And it was only after Achan was judged that Israel was able to win again in battle. The very kind of thing Solomon foresaw, where in this case he looks back on. Well, the third scenario involves God sending drought in judgment for Israel's sin. Verse 26, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you. 
Now, this kind of judgment would occur in the reign of Israel's evil king, Ahab, during the ministry of the prophet Elijah, so that no rain fell on the land for three whole years. Now, that was devastating for a people who lived on the margins anyway, who relied on rain even to survive. And it occurred because there had been a prolonged period of idolatry and gross moral evil. Just go back and read First Kings 17 and following. There it is. Now what's interesting is it never occurred to King Ahab and all of his wicked compatriots, especially his wife uh, Jezebel, that their sin would have such serious results. Who thought it? Isn't our nation that way today? Never. The last thing that occurs to people is that the sins that we exult in, gross sins, protracted sins, would result in God's judgment. Well, the reader of the Bible expects that very thing. Solomon knew that in this case, God would shut the heavens. He would make the land dry because of the sins committed on it. Now, verses 28 to 31 anticipate a series of national disasters that would occur as God's judgment on Israel's sin. These include famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, along with enemies at the city gate, plague and sickness of various kinds. Verse 28. Well, the prophet Joel records an absolutely devastating locust plague as judgment for some unstated sin. If you read Joel carefully and you're given your choice of judgment, you will never choose locusts if you read that one. Wow, the the locust plague. Second Chronicles 32 will relate the episode in the time of Hezekiah when the Assyrian army besieges the city of Jerusalem. And we learn that judgments on this scale... They occur because the people were so slow to learn from God's prior chastisements. And there are times when God brings disaster after disaster upon sinners because they have not recognized the sinfulness of their actions. Well, notice that while the people were slow to recognize their guilt, God was not. He was fully aware, and that is why these calamities occurred. Again, a cause for prayer for our land. Now, it should be observed that Solomon here is describing God's swift and certain judgment on Israel because the people of Israel are his covenant people, and the nation of Israel is his holy nation. His prayer here does not prove, in fact, that every time disaster strikes a secular nation, it has been caused by some sin. We need to be careful. We'll see that in chapter 7 as well on the positive side of directly applying what is said here of Israel to modern secular nation states. No modern nation today enjoys Israel's special relationship with God, not even the secular state of Israel. And therefore, God in many cases will simply store up his judgment for a future day. They're not his people. This is about his people. Nonetheless, both scripture and history show that God's judgment of sin does apply generally to all nations. You think of Proverbs 14.34, righteousness exalts a nation and sin is a reproach to any people. You see, knowing this, even secular nations today are very wise to repent of their sins in order to escape God's curse. You think of wiser days in our own land when a military defeat would take place and the, the Congress would call for a national day of fasting and prayer. There was an awareness of this. 
Well, Solomon's final scenario had special application to the original readers of Second Chronicles because it warns of God's judgment on sin by sending the nation into exile. And of course, Chronicles was written to a generation after the exile that had returned to Jerusalem. Verse 36, if they sin against you and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to a land far or near. Now, this very judgment occurred during the ministry of the prophet Jeremiah after repeated warnings, generations of prophetic warnings against idolatry and sin. There had been prior judgments. It had all been ignored. And so there would be this worst-case scenario, Darrof Davis calls it. And so Solomon, praying in the Holy Spirit, he foretells not merely what would happen if Israel persisted this way, but rather when, he says. It's when they are expelled from the land because of their hardened hearts. I think maybe one of the most chilling episodes in all of the prophecy of Jeremiah is when he arranges, God arranges for the scroll of his warnings and of his his revelation to be provided in, in written copy by Baruch, his scribe, and it's sent through the court to King Jehoiakim. And we read in Jeremiah 36 how Jehoiakim sits before a fire and arrogantly and and just callously takes out his knife and he slices off pieces of the scroll and he throws it into the fire. He slices off, here's what he thinks about God's warning. He slices off, and this is not wise when Nebuchadnezzar is moving on your country, but there it is. The callousness of the hardened heart, he slices it in pieces, throws them into the fire. Jeremiah records that having committed this desecration, listen to the hardened heart. Neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid. Oh, be afraid if you are a desecrator of God's word, a scoffer of Jesus Christ. They had utterly forgotten this prayer that Solomon uttered as he dedicated the temple. Well, notice that Solomon himself does not invent these scenarios. You might, you, you might be thinking, well, he's doing a prophecy here. Actually, he's just reading his Bible because all of these scenarios, all of these calamities were pre-recorded by Moses in Deuteronomy chapters 28 and 29. He's merely, as Dale Ralph Davis puts it, he's merely praying out of his Pentateuch. We likewise should pray out of the Bible. He's looking to the future straight out of the book of Deuteronomy. And Solomon shows that it's those who heed God's word, diligently studying the scripture, those are the ones who are aware of the danger of sin. Well, if we add up Solomon's petitions against future judgment, it gives us a biblical view of sin. He shows not only that sin is always ultimately judged by the Lord, but also in the case of his covenant people, it is going to be judged swiftly when it is not confessed and repented. You think uh, in Hebrews 12, where we're told individually that as children we're disciplined by our fathers, effective discipline is closely tied to the time of the event. And he prays in verse 36, if they sin against you and there is no one who does not sin. You see, Solomon also knows there is a universal problem of sin. This is why this is so important. Paul's going to later echo that statement in Romans 3.23. Solomon prays, there is no one who does not sin. And Paul says, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is an essential truth if you wish to be saved. Everyone is a sinner, so we all have an urgent need to realize that God judges sin. Dare I say that somewhere in Solomon's prayer is a sin you have committed, 
and a judgment you should fear. It's for this reason that everyone needs to know how to be forgiven. Well, while Solomon's prayer chronicles in advance the very history that Second Chronicles will then unfold, his purpose was not primarily to discuss God's judgment, but to plead with God in these scenarios for him to forgive his people's sin. And he's going to discuss before God the way of forgiveness. Now, the original readers of the book could bear witness that God has mercy to forgive because they are those who'd been brought back from the land to the land after the exile of which Solomon spoke. But even they needed to know how to be forgiven because they were going to remain sinners. You say, well, I don't need to deal with sin. I've been forgiven. No, no, but you keep sinning is the thing. We need to know how we are forgiven and we need to hear Solomon's prayer for God's mercy on our sins. Well, in each of the scenarios we have considered, Solomon not only describes the sin and the subsequent judgment, but he prays to God for their forgiveness. We also, here's the first thing he says, we are forgiven when we pray. Clearly, this is one of the implications. We are, if we want to be forgiven, we need to pray. Now, the second situation involved Israel suffering military defeat because of their sin. And and in verses 24 and 25, here's how Solomon prays. If they turn again and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave them and to their fathers. If we want to be forgiven, we need to pray. Same prescriptions given when they're judged through a drought. Verse 27, then hear in heaven, hear their prayers, and forgive the sin of your servants. When various disasters would strike, Solomon pleads, verses 29 and 30, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own sorrow and stretching out his hands toward this house, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive. Now in this case, Solomon acknowledges that God knows whether or not a prayer for forgiveness is sincere. And so the people, we, we pray for forgiveness. We, don't need, we shouldn't pray in the abstract. People say, well, you know, I suppose I've sinned. That is not the prayer Solomon's talking about. But we need to be clear. We need to confess our actual sins, our actual personal guilt if our sins to be forgiven. He says in verse 30, for you, you only know the hearts of the children of mankind. We therefore must pray sincerely, grieving, confessing the guilt of our sins so that, as 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the first thing we need to know about how to be forgiven. We need to pray to God asking to be forgiven. But notice further that when we pray for forgiveness... Our appeal must be to God's grace alone. If we want to be forgiven, we need to pray, but we need to appeal on the basis of God's grace. We do not appeal to God on the basis of other good deeds we've done. That's the way people think. Well, I've done other things that will, that will balance the scales. Actually, they do not balance the scale. Do not, you don't want those scales actually displayed to you. That's not how we pray. Well, I've done other good things. Nor do we do it by minimizing our guilt. Father, forgive me. It wasn't that bad after all. Actually, it is far worse than you imagine from the perspective of a holy God. And throughout this intercession, he speaks of those who pray and plead with you in this house or to this place. 
Verse 24, verse 26, if they pray toward this place. Verse 29, stretching out his hands towards this house. Verse 32, when he comes and prays toward this house, then God would forgive. The point was not that the temple had special powers with God to grant forgiveness, but rather that it symbolized God's grace to be with his people. And that's because the temple is where the sacrifices for sin were offered and were accepted by God in his grace. Whenever you hear this, this occurs all through the prophets. I pray towards your holy hill. I pray towards your temple. They're praying to where the sacrificial blood was spilt for sin. The purpose of the temple was prayer. The prayer was received because the sacrifices. Sinners are forgiven by trusting God's promise and appealing to his grace. As Paul explained in Ephesians, explained in Ephesians 2.8, by grace you have been saved through faith. We pray according to his grace. That's our appeal. But then thirdly, we need to note that God forgives those who pray to his grace from a contrite and penitent heart. There must also be repentance. Look at verse 24. He says that in praying for forgiveness, they turn again and acknowledge your name. That's about as good a biblical definition of repentance as you'll find. It's a turning away from sin and idolatry, an acknowledging of God as sovereign Lord. Verse 29, Solomon says we must pray, each knowing his own affliction and his own sorrow. He adds that you only know the hearts of the children of mankind. Verse 30, Leslie Allen writes, repentance is a matter of heart and mind. It is a spiritual realignment with God's will. And for that reason, repentance cannot be faked. They cannot be faked before a God who was able to read the hearts of men and women. Well, God's judgments, we find, are actually designed to this end. He actually, in the manner of judging his people, of disciplining us and chastising us today, he is aiming at bringing us back to repentance. For instance, God sent the Israelites into the Babylonian exile. Why Babylon? Because the primary sin was idolatry, and God wanted them to be sick and tired of idolatry after spending 70 years in Babylon. But you, you, you wanted idolatry? You're going to go to the capital of idolatry. You're going to experience the filth and the depravity and the corruption. You're going to... You're going to eat it with your, with your daily bread. You wanted idolatry? Go to Babylon. And sure enough, interesting, after the Babylonian exile, there's no problem of idolatry ever again. And so the nature, this is true for us, the nature of his discipline is corrective to bring us to the wisdom that we should repent Look at verses 37 to 39 about the exile, that when they're exiled, if they repent with all their heart, with all their soul in the land of their captivity to which they were carried captive and prayed toward their land saying, we ha- here's repentance, we have sinned, we have acted perversely and wickedly, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their pleas. Now, you hope you're thinking already that that's the very prayer that Daniel prays in Daniel 9. Prophet Daniel was sent ahead into Babylon because he intended to restore them. There was a prophet waiting on them. Ezekiel was there too. And, uh, and they were told by Jeremiah in chapter 29 and 25 of Jeremiah that it was going to be 70 years of exile. And Daniel knew how to keep a calendar. And he actually knew in the book of Leviticus, which probably from here too, which prayer he should pray. And he prays in Daniel 9 using virtually the identical words. 
Not exact, but it's the very same thing that Solomon said here. If they pray and they own their sin, if they say we've sinned, acted perversely and wickedly, that's the very language that Daniel uses. And God restored them. You see, Daniel's example shows that however far you may be from God because of your sin, if you will call upon his grace in repentance, he will forgive you. Solomon not only shows that how we can be forgiven by praying by God's grace with a penitent heart, but he adds that God then will do more than forgive you. He will go beyond forgiveness. He will actually restore you. Look at verse 27. When the sin has led to a drought, the plea for forgiveness would also cause the rain to fall again. There's a restoration And this restoration includes a return to practical godliness, an instruction in the ways of the Lord. Verse 31, that they may fear you and walk in your ways all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. You see, what a wonderful motivation this is. When we sin, we need to repent. We need to call for God to forgive us. He restores those who feel that they have been lost in the lands of sin Maybe you feel that way right now. Maybe you feel I'm too far gone. You're not too far gone. And he will restore you. Jesus taught a parable about how gracious and loving is the heart of our God and how he loves to restore the lost. He told about a a parable about a shepherd who owned a hundred sheep and one of the sheep was lost. And Jesus said in Luke 15, 4, does he not leave the 99 in the open country, go after the one that is lost until he finds it? That's exactly what a shepherd does. And that's what God wants to do for you, O lost sheep. And Jesus concludes with, with the delight our God of grace takes. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Luke 15, verse 7. Now Solomon knew that the Israelites were likely to fall prey to idols, the idols that surrounded them. He knew this sin would occur. He knew that it would lead them into exile because he read Deuteronomy 28 and 29. And it's for this reason he prays that they would know that there is mercy and grace. You know, the key to repentance is not only the the sorrow and the guilt of your sin, not only being tired of the misery of sin, but the awareness of the grace and mercy that is waiting for you to forgive you and also to restore you. That's the key. That's how we, when we urge people to repent, we never merely give threats of further judgment. The Bible also includes, don't forget the loving heart of your God, the grace that is available for you. Philip Ryken says this, this is the way for us to pray. Whenever we are in one of the dry times of spiritual life, he's talking about the judgment of drought. He says we then need to repent of loving the gods of money, sex, power, all the other idols of our age, and we should pray for God to rain his blessings down upon us refreshing us with the pure water of the Holy Spirit. You find yourself far from God, and you know you've not walked closely with him, and you feel dry and distanced. Pray. And that drought will be responded to by the showers of blessing. But God's grace goes even further than a restoration to what we've lost. Solomon's sixth petition Notes the case of those who'd already been forgiven. It's an exception in a way. He doesn't talk about this group having been judged and then forgiving. They've already been forgiven, and now they're going out to fight battle. We think of our, our spiritual warfare. 
He says this, if your people go out to battle against their enemies by whatever way you send them and they pray to you towards the city that you've chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and plea and maintain their cause. Verses 34 and 35, you see the same language, maintain their cause in verse 39. Now the point is that when we repent and return after experiencing God's rod of discipline, When we are restored, it is not to some second-class status. You may say, well, I've blown it. I once had the opportunity to really have God's blessing in my life, but I've blown it. He's restored me, but I don't really have his favor. Solomon's saying, no, 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 give them your favor when they pray to this place. To the contrary to that way of thinking, he says, when our sins are forgiven, they are completely taken away. One of the great lines, you see it in Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 8. Your sins I will remember no more. The residue of sin is removed. The, the, the effects of sin on our relationship with God are taken away. We are fully restored to his favor Now, Jesus made this point in the wonderful parable of the prodigal son. You know, he'd led such gross sin. He'd really offended his father. He'd taken half the inheritance. He'd squandered it in riotous living. He's now in the far country of sin, eating pig food. And he decided that he would come back, but but he knew he could only ask for a second-class status. He'd planned, if you know the parable, he'd rehearsed his lines. I'm not coming back as a son. I've, I've blown that. Let me just be your servant. That's a lot better than where I've been. And Jesus shows how the father runs to him and restores to him all his former privilege as a beloved son. Luke 15, 22, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hands and shoes on his feet. Those were the emblems of sonship. You see how eager we should be, even if we have been living in the far country of sin, even if we have been eating the pig slop of depraved living Oh, we should return to the loving heart of our Heavenly Father. He will forgive. He will restore us completely into his favor, not some second-class status. Well, one last scenario completes Solomon's prayer for forgiveness. His fifth appeal concerns not Israelites, interestingly, but a foreigner, verse 32 who is not of your people Israel, when he comes and prays towards this house. Now here we see Solomon's prayer for the forgiveness of sinners outside the church, outside of Israel, sinners from the world who hear of God's grace and come to him in faith. Now an example of this would be given in 2 Kings chapter 5 by the Syrian general Naaman. You and I read Syrian general we think it's no big deal that's not how israelites read syrian general this is the guy who's been conquering them and plundering them and in this case naaman has leprosy and he had the kind of leprosy for which there was no cure at all but he heard that there was healing in the in israel with the god of israel and he came seeking mercy second kings 5 1 to 7 and solomon had prayed for him Hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls you. 2 Chronicles 6.33 And sure enough, under the ministry of the prophet Elisha, God heard Naaman's plea. But notice from Solomon's prayer how it is that the foreigner comes to Israel's God for mercy. Verse 32, 
He comes for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arms. Now, unbelievers hear of God's great name and they discover his saving power pretty much in one way, namely through the witness of his people. So it was in the case of Naaman. You know the story. He had captured an Israelite slave girl and she had mercy on him. Oh, he's the enemy. But she had mercy on him. And when he was in utter despair, she sent word to him. And the word got to him that there is a God in Israel. He can heal you. He can cleanse you. Second Kings 5, 2 to 4. And this is the role that Christians play in God's desire for forgiveness. We play it through the witness of evangelism. That's how it is that this prayer is fulfilled. They hear of your great name. But then notice why God will be eager to forgive the foreigner who prays in Jesus' name. Verse 33, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Now this is a wonderful thing because it tells us that we Christians serve a God who delights to be known particularly for his grace to forgive and we've got a lot of things going on in our culture there's a lot of things we say from the bible we need to make sure that the one thing that people understand that we believe is that our god delights to give grace to forgive to show mercy on those who come to him ralph davis writes the temple was god's gift to israel but it was intended to draw those far beyond israel into the joy of atonement and prayer the same is true of the church today Church is here for us, yes, but we're part of a missionary calling. We as a church are to be a source by which people learn of God's mercy for sinners. We, we spread his fame whenever we tell of Jesus and his saving blood and encourage sinners to pray and be forgiven. Well, one thing Solomon's prayer proves is that the religion of the Bible is not for people who never sin. Christians actually do not believe that we are better than other people. Instead, the Christian church in its old covenant and its new covenant forms consists of sinners who discover the loving heart of a gracious God who is willing to forgive, to restore, to bless us with favor, and moreover, who wants the whole world to know about it. And so when we sin... And Solomon added, there is no one who does not sin. We need to turn to God with penitent hearts, knowing he is ready, even eager to forgive and to restore us to the fullness of his love. Well, the final verses of 2 Chronicles 6 compress a much larger account that's found in 1 Kings, Kings chapter 8 in which Solomon concludes his prayer with a benediction for God's abiding presence. He prays, he gives the benediction in verse 40, Now, O my God, let your eyes be open and your ears, your ears attentive to the prayer of this place. And likewise, when the minister today concludes the worship service with a benediction, he's playing Solomon's part in calling on God to continue in his grace, sending the people out in the grace of Jesus Christ. It was on the authority of God's word that Solomon called God to go on, keep hearing the prayers of his people that would be offered at and to this temple so that his gracious will would always forgive. That is his benediction. 
And then he concludes the entire service of dedication that goes all the way back to chapter 5. It began with the Ark of the Covenant going up to the temple, Second uh, Chronicles 5, 1 to 14. And you remember when the Ark went in, the cloud of God's glory filled that place. Well, the Ark was the footstool of God's throne of mercy. It is the place where God provided salvation through the atoning blood that was sprinkled there. And so Solomon concludes by praying for that provision to continue. Verse 41, and now arise, O Lord God, go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let that ark, that provision, that, that, that ministry of propitiation, the sprinkling of atoning blood, let that continue in the future years of the temple. And he further prays for the priests to be attentive to their ministry of God's grace for the people. Verse 41, let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. Let your saints rejoice in your goodness. And he goes further. He's he's determined to employ every resource of God's covenant. And he asks God to hear his own prayer as he is God's anointed king. Verse 42, O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. That's Solomon here. And even his father David comes into view. Verse 42, remember your steadfast love to David, your servant. Well, I hope it's obvious to Christians that each of these resources that he's summoning for God's saving ministry and forgiveness is each of them is a picture of Jesus Christ. And Jesus came, after all, to replace the temple. It was a, it was a holding place for him. His cross is the place where sinners appealed to God for the forgiveness of sin. And the blood that was sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant looked forward to the blood that Jesus would shed as a propitiation for our sins. 1 John 2, 1-2, he is the propitiation for our sins, the sprinkled blood that covers our sin. And then when Solomon asks that the priests be clothed with salvation, he's referring to the garments that wore. And the garments the priests wore did not depict their own holiness. John Calvin points out, if you have to wear holy garments, it's because you yourself are not holy. But they were were playing a role. They were filling a spot. And who would come and fill that spot? It would be Jesus Christ who would come in the true spotlessness of a true priest and of 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 an atoning lamb. When Solomon prays for God to not turn away from the face of your anointed one, yes, it's for his own prayer, but it's a direct appeal for the saving work of Jesus Christ. You may know that the word anointed one is Meshuach. That's the word for Messiah. It's Jesus who would be that Messiah. And it was by God's steadfast love, keeping his covenant promise to David, it was by that means that Jesus was born into that royal house to become the savior of the world. And so the message of Solomon's benediction for us is this. If he could be sure of God's grace to forgive those who pray because of the ark, the Levitical priest, because of his own kingship, because of God's love for David, but how much greater is our confidence to come to God for mercy and to be forgiven when we come through the ministry of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it was perhaps with this greater forgiveness even in mind that Jesus answered Peter's question the way that he did. Remember how Peter asked in Matthew 18, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus answers in a way that shows that with his coming, the grace of God 
is even greater than it was before. Matthew 18:22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. You see, now that Jesus has come, there is grace that is greater than all of your sin, whatever and how much of it there is. And if you will pray to God in his name, Jesus will forgive you and he will restore you to blessings that will spread his fame forever. Amen. And Father, how thankful we are for this prayer. We are the beneficiaries of it. And it is you who appointed Solomon to intercede. Oh, we have that greater Solomon above. In all the wisdom of his perfect grace, interceding for us. Father, use this to draw us to you from sin. And when we pray, Lord, may we, when we sin, Lord, may we pray, forgive us. And when we pray, Lord, be faithful to Jesus, to forgive us, to restore us, to bring us fully into your favor, that he might be glorified through your grace. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.